Uh, well, welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Welcome to any visitors that we have joining us today. Uh, visitors, you've come on a very special day. At the last Sunday of every month, we have a fellowship lunch. So after our service today, we have a, a fellowship lunch where we're having soup and rolls. So please stick around and join us for that. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. And today we're continuing our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're just about halfway through, and today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 to 16. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you, please turn to our passage now. We're going to look at that together. Or if you have our church newsletter, our corner post, as Yako said earlier, that passage can be found there. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 2 to 16, and this is God's word. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and, were, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves? What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done? At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own, own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word together. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for the grace it is that we are able to have your word open up in front of us. Uh, Father, as we come to your word now, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us by your spirit. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would unblock our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts as we come to your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that your word would do exactly what you have intended for it, Lord, that it would not return to you empty. Our Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, and Lord, that you would be our teacher. Lord, that your word would be illuminated to us as it is expounded now. And Father, I pray, Lord, be with me. Anoint me for this task as I preach your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, it was 2014. It was a Saturday morning. It was in October. And I had a job interview. I walked into a room to a group of men laughing. They were enjoying each other's company. And you could see the warmth as they interacted with one another. But as I walked in, a seriousness came into the room. I don't remember much from the interview, but I remember one of the men sitting across from me asked me a question. Michael, can you love this church? Michael, can you love this church? As you might have pieced together, I was being interviewed by the session of Cornerstone. And at that time, we had four elders. Campbell, Steve Fair, Des, and Simon. And the only question I can remember being asked, I mind you, there were plenty of questions asked of me, but the only one I can remember is whether I could love this church. I can honestly say, I love this church. One of the greatest joys is loving and serving Cornerstone. But can I also say that one of the greatest difficulties of ministry is loving and serving Cornerstone. I remember being asked, what is one of the greatest joys of ministry? And what is one of the greatest difficulties of ministry? And I gave the same answer for both. It's the church. It's the people. The church can be the cause of both much heartache, but also great joy. Paul, in his letter, shows us the reality of serving, shows us the reality of ministry, that the people whom you serve and you serve alongside will give you the greatest heartaches, but also produce some of the greatest joys. As we come to our passage today, we have two points that we're going to be looking at. First is Paul's struggles, and then second is Paul's joys. As we come to our passage, let's first have a little recap of what has happened thus far. Uh, Paul is writing to his beloved Corinthians. It's considered that this letter was written over many stages, perhaps even written over several months. But prior to this letter being written, Paul has done three things. First, he had a painful visit to the Corinthians. We learn this from chapter 2, verse 1. 
And because of this painful visit, he reconciled that he would not visit again on his way to Macedonia, as he originally planned. Second, he had written to them what is the, known as the severe letter. Our friends, it's considered that the Apostle Paul had wrote four letters to the Corinthians, two of which we still have today. However, 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter he wrote. The severe letter is the third letter, which we no longer have a copy of. In chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he speaks of this letter which he had sent to them. And he says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul wrote this letter to address the visit he had had just had with them and to call them to repentance. And the third thing he had done is he had sent Titus to them. Uh, Titus likely delivered this letter to the Corinthians. And Paul says that he expected to see Titus when they had arrived in Troas. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul said, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. As since his painful visit to Corinth, since he wrote them the severe letter, and since he said goodbye to Titus, Paul has been writing this letter, 2 Corinthians. And as he writes, he writes a defense for his apostolic ministry. Uh, what we have gone through from chapter 2, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 1 has been Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to embrace his ministry, to embrace his message. He has reminded the Corinthians what it means to know Christ, what it means to be in Christ. He has told them of the unseen hope that is found in him. And throughout these chapters, he has agonized over the Corinthians, and he has expressed his love for them. So friends, it's with this context that we now turn to our passage today. Chapter 7, verse 2 to 16. And in chapter 7, verse 2 to 4, Paul continues to pour out his love to the Corinthians. And as he does so, you can feel his struggle, his heartache, as he says these words, have a look at verse 2. Paul says once again, make room for us in your hearts. Our Paul continues the appeal he made in chapter 6, verse 11 to 13, asking the Corinthians to not withhold their affections and love from Paul and his companions. In these verses, 6, 11 to 13, he has said how much he has loved them that he has shared with them his life and his ministry. None of his affections were withheld from them. And here in our passage today, Paul continues his appeal. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. 
In other words, in our dealings with you, we have not been harsh with you. We have not led you astray. We have not mistreated you for any personal gain. Paul actually says, for your sake, we became poor so that you may know the riches of Jesus. In other words, Paul and his companions, they have done the complete opposite to what they have been accused of. Paul has told the Corinthians that he has endured hardships. He has endured struggles so that they may know the gospel. Paul and his companions have made themselves poor so that the Corinthians may know the riches of Christ. Friends, from these words, do we feel Paul's struggle, his struggle for the Corinthians? As he pleads for them, he goes on to say, I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. In other words, Paul sees that their lives are so intertwined that he would be prepared to live or die with these people. Paul then speaks in verse 4 with a love and a joy for them. Yet we've heard that this joy, this love, it's not being reciprocated. Uh, This church isn't loving him. One-sided love. One-sided love is a painful place to find oneself. They say it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But what about a love that is never given, that is never returned? Would it have been better to have loved, to have never loved at all? Imagine for a second with me. If a minister, before they started serving at a new church, was asked, can you love this church? Can you serve this church? Can you love the people that are there? And that minister threw himself into ministry, seeking to love this church, seeking to serve that church, but found himself not being loved in return, found himself being accused of being harsh, of not preaching the gospel, of taking advantage of people. To be a minister in that scenario, it would be a sad place to be in, to be loving a church that doesn't love you. That's where Paul finds himself. He finds himself loving a church that doesn't love him. A church that is withholding their affections from him. It's one of the heartaches of ministry that those whom you love and care for, as Paul does for the Corinthians, can be the source of much pain, of much heartache. Gary Miller in his commentary said that any minister of the gospel must prepare themselves for both praise and slander. However, the pill of slander is a much harder pill to swallow. And I think in our Australian context, it can be a lot easier to give criticism rather than praise. When someone is fulfilling their role, we can easily say to ourselves, well, they're just doing what they're paid to do. However, if someone is doing something we don't appreciate or we deem wrong, we can be quick to offer them our opinions our critiques. 
We may be even quick, unfortunately, to slander the good name of someone. I think this is a reminder to each of us. This is a reminder to each of us to be slow in our critiques of others. Let us be especially slow in our critique of others, especially those who watch over us. As the writer to the Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And he says again about them, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. As Paul was criticized by the Corinthians, it tells us that this, can, this is something that can happen even in our own church. If it can happen to the Apostle Paul, it can happen to any minister. Jonathan Edwards considered one of the greatest divines of the 18th century, after 20 years of serving his church, was kicked out by them. A man through his ministry prompted a great awakening was not loved by his own congregation. Unfortunately, we can be quick to offer criticism. We can so easily fall into the trap of being unloving. As we look at these verses together from chapter 7, we can see that one of the struggles of serving, one of the struggles of ministry, will be the people you love. But this passage also shows us that the people whom we love can be one of the greatest joys of serving, one of the greatest joys of ministry. And this leads us to our second point. Point two, Paul's joys. And friends, as we come to our second point, we can only assume that time has passed. Uh, Paul picks up his thoughts that he was writing in chapter 2, verse 13, that he left for Troas and went to Macedonia. And when he arrived in Macedonia, chapter 7, verse 5, he says this, We had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Now, this conflict is probably uh, opposition, opposition that they had met when they had arrived in Macedonia. But these fears within, these fears are because when they had arrived in Macedonia, they didn't find Titus there. In other words, Paul is concerned. He is afraid for Titus, Titus's welfare. But a greater fear, a greater concern is also for the Corinthians. He's concerned as to how they have responded to that severe letter. Paul, as God's ambassador, is struggling. And he's already endured so much. As he said in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. And just as God helped Paul and and his companions in their struggles the last time, God helps them again. Have a look at verse 6 and 7 with me. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. My friends, we ask, what has just happened? Uh, Wasn't Paul struggling with the people of Corinth and their attitude towards him? And now he says that his joy is greater than ever. Well, in the midst of great struggle, God has provided Paul and his companions with great comfort. Titus is safe. And better yet, Paul has heard how the Corinthians have received his letter. Paul says, verse 8, when you received my letter, it grieved you. It hurt you. But it also did something so much more. It led you to repentance. Paul says he does not regret what he did, but he, for he didn't do it with malice. Remember, he sent this letter with great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve them, but to let them know the depth of his love for them. As we read in our Old Testament reading, the loving and honest but hard words of someone we love might hurt us. It might wound us. However, it isn't done with ill intent. Those words are given because they care for us. And the hard words of Paul has led the Corinthians to repentance. In his book, Lead, Paul Tripp informs the reader that the gospel needs to guide every facet of our ministry. That when we speak with others, even sometimes hard and painful words, we need to have the gospel informing our behaviors. That I am a sinner redeemed by grace. In need of God's grace each and every day. And as I speak the hard but loving words to my brother or sister, it is done not to grieve them, but because I love them. That they need the grace of God in their lives just as much as I do. My friends, the gospel gives us permission to have hard but loving words with others. And the gospel enables for hard and loving words to be received. Why? Because both parties are in need of God's grace. The hard words of the Apostle Paul were not given to grieve the Corinthians. They were given because he loved them. He delivered those hard words so that the church would repent of their wrongs. Wrongs that they had committed. Wrongs that they had committed against Paul. And Paul says here, verse 9, that his hard words have led the church to sorrow. But that sorrow has led to repentance. And it is with this repentance that has led from Paul from struggling over the church 
to having a great joy for them and in them. That although they gave him such heartaches, they have now become a source of great joy. Joy because his severe letter, by God's grace, led them to repent. He says, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. My friends, this is a stunning statement, verse 10. It lies at the heart of Paul's argument. And so it's necessary for us to spend some time on it. So we ask, what is the difference? What is the difference between godly and worldly sorrow? Well, firstly, let's ask, let's think about what worldly sorrow is. A worldly sorrow is a sorrow that does not lead to repentance. Let me say that again. Worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading gave the example of Esau. Esau, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, sold his birthright for a single meal. That birthright was God's favor. It was God's promises. The blessings which God had made to Abraham had made to Isaac. As the eldest son, they were his birthright. Those promises were rightfully his. But Scripture says he despised his birthright. He traded it for a bowl of lentils. And when Esau finds out that the blessing that was meant for him has now been given to Jacob, his younger brother, he weeps. He weeps. But his weeping and sorrow didn't lead to repentance. What did it lead to? It led to anger. It led to murderous thoughts. I'll take another example. Judas Iscariot, who when he realized the wrong he had done in betraying the Lord Jesus, was filled with guilt. But instead of coming to God in repentance, he sought to remove the guilt and burden he was feeling by going to the chief priests. But he was rejected by them. His sorrow did not lead to repentance, just a guilty conscience. Worldly sorrow looks to self. And in ourselves, there is no real hope, no real solution. So worldly sorrow leads to hopelessness. Paul says it leads to death. But he contrasts this with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow which seeks God. Godly sorrow which brings us to repentance. Godly sorrow which leads to life. And how does godly sorrow lead to life, we ask? Well, godly sorrow ultimately leads us to a dependency on God in whom life is found. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. And this is how the Westminster Confession of Faith expresses repentance. It says, Repentance unto life is a gospel grace, the doctrine of which is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, just as is the doctrine of faith in Christ. By it, a sinner 
seeing not only the danger, but also the filthiness and hatefulness of his sins, because they are contrary to God's holy nature and his righteous law, turns from all his sins to God in the realization that God promises mercy in Christ to those who repent, and so grieves for and hates his sin that he determines and endeavors to walk with God in all the ways that he commands. Friends, true repentance not only sorrows for sin, True repentance not only sorrows for sin, but looks for hope in a Savior. Repentance is more than a guilty conscience. Repentance is seeking and finding hope, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Christ who is able to deal with our sorrows. J.I. Packer, in his book, A Passion for Holiness, memorably summarized repentance like this. First, it's a realistic recognition that we have wronged God. Second, it's a regretful remorse at having dishonored God. Third, it's reverent requesting of God's pardon. Fourth, resolute renunciation of sin And fifth, a requisite restitution of those we have hurt. Godly sorrow, which brings repentance, leads to salvation. And Paul says, verse 11, he says this, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. What Paul is saying here is that godly sorrow brings about change. A change which ultimately wishes to correct the wrongs that have been done. So that before God, you may now be seen as innocent. He says now to them, verse 12, See, even though, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Paul's painful visit led to to things that were said against Paul and his companions. Sin was caused on the part of the Corinthians. But through this severe letter, the Corinthians see the error of their ways. Their sorrow has brought about repentance. And they can now see Paul's love for them. But they also see how much they still need Paul. And this realization, verse 13, has become a joy to Paul. Verses 14 to 16, the response that the Corinthians had given to Titus has cast out all fears, all concerns that the Apostle Paul had had. Instead of now feeling a deep heartache within himself towards the the Corinthians, it has been replaced with now an even greater joy. Our friends, there are perhaps multiple lessons which we can draw from, from our passage. Finding a joy in people, learning to have hard conversations with people we love, But from these verses, there is one particular application which I want to draw upon. 
And that is repentance. Repentance, put simply, is a turning away from sin and a turning to God. It's seeing the filthiness and repulsiveness of our sins, that our sin is an act of disobedience against God. To sin is to reject God, and to sin is to come under His judgment. But repentance is coming to God. It's acknowledging our sin. It's weeping over our sin. It's despising our sin. And it's asking God to restore us. Repentance is finding mercy and compassion in our Savior. It's coming to Jesus. It's knowing that Jesus, through the cross, has defeated the power of sin, has defeated the power of death. Repentance is resting in His promises. And repentance is ceasing our foolish wanderings, but by God's grace following in the footsteps of the Savior. This means, friends, that we need to pray that God, by His Spirit, would teach us to see our sin, to hate our sin, and, that God, and praying to God that He would help us to walk in accordance with His ways. Friends, it's God who, 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 while we were dead in sins and trespasses, saved us by the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's by His continual mercy and grace that we are able to actually come to Him today in repentance and through repentance find life. So as we close, we close by asking the question, are there things today Are there things today that you need to repent of? Are there people perhaps you have criticized, you have hurt, that you need to apologize to? Are there people who have loved you that you have caused great heartache towards, that you need to reconcile with? The repentance of the Corinthian church has led to Paul's greatest joy. Seeing your brothers and sisters growing in their understanding of the gospel and their need for Jesus is one of the greatest joys in loving and serving the church. One of my greatest joys in serving Cornerstone is seeing people grow in their love for Jesus. And one of the ways that happens is people turning away from sin and turning to God. Repentance is fundamental to the Christian faith. It should be part of our Christian walk. As Jesus said, there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. It should be our great joy also. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come as your people who have been redeemed by Jesus We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's through Jesus that we are able to come into your presence with boldness. It's through Jesus that we are able to claim the promises of being your adopted children, of being washed whiter than snow. Our Father, it is through Jesus that we are able to stand in your presence without any fear or condemnation. And we want to give you thanks and praise for that. We want to give you thanks and praise for the hope that we have in Christ, made possible by his death and his resurrection. 
But Father, we also come to you now and we confess that we have sinned against you. We have sinned against your most holy name. Our Father, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives. Lord, that you would continue to change us and transform us. Father, Lord, that you would make us more holy. So, Father, we pray, teach us to get rid of those things in our life that is removing our worship from you. Our Father, we also pray that you would make it clear to us if we have wronged anyone, if we need to reconcile with anyone, Lord, that you would help us to do that. Father, we need the gospel just as much as anyone else. We need the good news of Jesus to permeate within our very lives. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that when we do have those hard but loving words, that we would remind ourselves the gospel. Father, as we both give those hard words, but also receive those hard words. Our Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus. We thank you that uh, through repentance, life is found. And through Jesus, um, we have a great hope that is stored for us in heaven. We pray all this in his name. Amen.